Hi, I'm Joy Howard, editor of Brigham Health Magazine. Welcome to today's topic on mental health, brought to you by Brigham Health. We provide the latest information on today's health topics directly from our experts. In this live recording from the Access Brigham Health event in November 2019, our panel sheds light on the Brigham's approach to tackling the complexities of mental illness in diagnosis, treatment, care, and research. Please remember this information should not take the place of advice or recommendations from your healthcare providers. I'm Dr. Chuck Morris, the Associate Chief Medical Officer here at the Brigham and Women's and have the good fortune of talking about the topic tonight, which is mental health. I want to build on a few statistics just to set the stage. One out of four people globally will be affected by mental health. Currently, Best estimates are 450 million individuals are suffering the impact of mental health right at this moment. More locally, we know from US-based assessments of primary care practices, mental health explains about 50% of all days on disability among patients. As a primary care doctor, I know that in my office, primary care doctors sort of care for approximately 50% of the mental health burden. So it's really a a disease that is sort of shared equally across specialists and generalists. On a more sobering note, last month, the CDC announced, or if any of you saw this, that suicide rates have increased 30% in the last two decades. So I don't think it's an underestimate to call this a crisis. And it is a pleasure, actually, to introduce three subject matter experts in the field to sort of walk us through all the things that are going on. So first, I just want to introduce Dr. Nomi. Levy Carrot. Nomi, why don't you come on up and have a seat? So Nomi is the Associate Vice Chair for Ambulatory Services here in the Department of Psychiatry. Dr. Kate Burdick is the Director for the Center for Mood and Psychosis Research here at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And Dr. David Silverswag, who's our Chair of the Department of Psychiatry. David, just to set us off, we talk about mental health and we talk about behavioral health. So just we're all using the same vocabulary. Walk the group through the difference between those two terms. Sure. There's really no difference in substance. And if anything, I think mental health and behavioral health, when we hear them used interchangeably today, and often behavioral health being the one that's put forth first, is a result of stigma and misunderstanding of mental illness, if I can say so myself. I'm all for behavioral health. We do things that are called behavioral health. But behavioral implies that it's just behavior. And whereas we know that it's not only what you do, but how you feel and the connection between those two, that is incredibly important and vital. And that we have the expertise in terms of understanding the mechanisms of and understanding the, the diagnoses and the treatments of. I consider behavioral health to be a euphemism, really, and want to be able to use it, but be able to transcend it as a label and to be able to address the underlying issues as to why people still have this sort of stigma around mental illness. Because if you have a physical illness, if you have asthma, no one blames you for wheezing. Nobody tells you to pull yourself up and snap out of it. It's no different when one thinks about depression or anxiety or an eating disorder or psychosis. To get to a point where we understand that, and where, and as you'll hear about work that's being done at the Brigham, we have new ways to approach this and new ways to care for it. 
we're really in a position to be able to then talk about what I would call psychiatric medicine, which is firmly within the field of medicine and proudly and truly embraces the functions of the brain that make us who we are. Certainly, patients with mental health disorders may face a stigma that's different, as you said, David, from somebody with cardiovascular disease or diabetes. Can you talk about sort of where do you see stigma being an obstacle in care here at the Brigham, and what are some of the things that are going on to help sort of move that forward and break down that stigma here? I think we're really fortunate to be in an institution where psychiatry is the most consulted service in the hospital, period. I mean, that sort of says it all, right? I would say that at least within the Brigham, as a culture, as an enlightened institution, as a leading edge academic center, there is no stigma virtually from a medical point of view. And I think we're also really fortunate to be at the Brigham because psychiatry loses money, unlike other fields or whatever. And it's tight for everybody now, and there are a lot of changes in healthcare. But even if we were to bill fully and collect fully, which never happens, for every patient we see, it doesn't cover the cost of our providers for their salaries and fringe let alone everything else. The hospital subsidizes mental health care. And lots of other places say, sorry, you know, we can't make money on that, and that's too bad, or we're going to scale down. Whereas there's a realization here that it's a vital part of care. There's a realization that all the science and medical experience suggests or supports the notion that if you have a medical illness, like you said, and like you treat in your practice, Chuck, and you don't treat the psychiatric component or behavioral components, that your medical outcomes are worse, and the costs are higher for the system, et cetera. So I think we've come a long way here in terms of reducing that. I think I'll just <clears throat> kind of echo what David said and take it from a slightly different angle in terms of being a researcher myself and focusing broadly on research in these disorders. Um, I think what we do in the field of research, particularly here at the Brigham, is very similar to the way we treat patients, the way we think about these disorders as medical disorders, as being rooted in biology. So this sort of general model that we kind of think of and study and research is what's referred to as the biopsychosocial model. And it's got three different components. The first is biology. And this is really acknowledging the idea that this is really a whole body disorder, but that what we really do understand that it is dysfunction at the level of the brain, which is biological, that is the way we need to kind of understand what causes these disorders in, in individuals. The psycho component of that is really the psychological notion, and this kind of harkens back more historically to the psychology and the mind and the way in which people who have these disorders might see things differently, interpret their the stimuli in the environment and their environment in different ways. And so that's sort of the, the mindset of individuals. And then the social aspect of it is equally important because everything is taken, obviously, in the context of a person's environment, the social environment that they grew up in and the current social environment that they're existing in, stressors and things of that nature from the environment. And all of these things converge in, in what's a pretty complicated model in, in thinking about these illnesses, but we have to be able to think of them in, in this broad way. And I think it, it does very much parallel the way we treat patients here at the Brigham as well. Here at the Brigham, we have 17 primary care, affiliated primary care clinics. Every single one of those clinics has the ability to access a social worker. And I think what you're talking about reinforces the notion that the old stereotypes of psychiatry, not just mental illness, but psychiatry, psychiatrists, psychiatric care are falling by the wayside as well. This is not, you know, long, long-term treatment on a couch and 
going back to uncover hidden memories or this or that. This is, and I'm happy, and we're happy to talk about it, but this is evidence-based, contemporary, very psychologically sophisticated, as well as very biologically sophisticated medicine in a way that helps people get back on their feet, build resilience, not just overcome difficulty, and move ahead in their lives and address their physical health as well. Glad you mentioned resilience, because that's something else I want to come back to at the end. But I also want to seize upon something, David, you said you talked about the complexity. You know, I mean, obviously, mental health illnesses are incredibly complex. They can be brought on or sort of triggered, if you will, by traumas, by other stressors, major life events, and then have obvious myriad repercussions through somebody's life, affecting their sense of identity, behaviors. Can you talk a little more granularity about your view about how the clinical practice of psychiatry here at the Brigham addresses that sort of complexity. One of the things that I, I was so excited and proud to be at the Brigham, we're really at the forefront of thinking about what we call trauma-informed care. It's one that recognizes that you know a majority of people in the world have come through life and experienced adversity in that process. And I think the CDC just had this huge study that came out last week, over 65,000 people. Right, and more than 60% of people will have experienced some level of adversity. You know, 15% or more had three or four more of these events. The original study was done by the CDC and Kaiser in the mid-90s. And what they showed, which was a sea change, is this dose-response relationship between the number of ACEs, the number of adverse childhood experiences you've had, and your overall health, not just increased depression and anxiety and substance use disorders, but also increases in stroke, in heart disease, in other chronic conditions. And those studies have been repeated over the ages. And in the way it does, it takes our society a long time to kind of catch up. But this CDC study that came out really solidified that understanding. So trauma-informed approach says, listen, all of us have in some ways, given the statistics, experienced some adversity over which we have either been overcome or been in some way impacted, or both, usually both. And so that means that we need to think about everyone who walks through this door as someone who is a survivor of some adversity, which means that they come with resiliences that have gotten to the point where they can see you, but also that we need to think about what are the framework within which we can engage people so that healthcare can be, first of all, not re-triggering, second of all, not traumatizing of itself, and third, and optimally, taking all of the science that we know about the brain, about the experience, about contextual processing and threat salience and the ways that emotional regulation and executive function interact, and how do we take that and then create a clinical environment that helps people feel psychologically safe as well as physically safe, that there's some transparency, that there's a collaborative process in that, in the discussion and kind of recognizing that ultimately it's not what's wrong with you, but ha what happened to you? We have this great opportunity to really shift and recognize that psychiatry has kind of a lot to offer. Another characteristic of our psychiatric services here at the Brigham that we're in the forefront of is sub or sub-sub-specialization, but not at the expense of taking care of anybody with any general thing. And so, for instance, we have perinatal mental health within women's mental health, within consultation psychiatry. And one of the things that's being discovered right now is the degree to which uh, stress during pregnancy can affect the offspring for the rest of the offspring's life, including their mental health and physical health. So you see these transgenerational, what we call epigenetic effects in terms of gene environment and neurodevelopmental interactions and the way in which the stress reactivity system of the body is set or reset and then have the capabilities now by understanding the biology and psychology to help reset that and to help it be less reactive 
and to help reframe things in a person's personal narrative so that the trauma doesn't end up being the defining thing of their life. David, I want you to keep the floor and then build on something that you, you'd mentioned and that Noe mentioned about that sort of complexity of medical comorbid illness on top of psychiatric or mental health issues. And you talked about the, the really the sub-sub-sub-specialization abilities that we have here. Can you speak a little bit more about what does that care look like here for the medically and psychiatrically complex patient? Absolutely. Well, one example would be, let's say we have a patient who's a woman in her 40s who has multiple sclerosis, and she's having depression. Well, we actually don't just have more neuropsychiatrists here at the Brigham than anywhere else in the world, or people like myself who are dual-trained neurologist psychiatrists, but we have an MS neuropsychiatrist, and an epilepsy neuropsychiatrist, and a movement disorder neuropsychiatrist, and a dementia neuropsychiatrist, and an autoimmune neuropsychiatrist, which is really unheard of, and it's akin to what happened in, in your field, internal medicine, in the 1960s and 70s, where you went from general internal medicine to a situation where that's still the foundation of what we do with primary care, but you have all these specialties because of the knowledge and, and scientific evidence that has accrued. Let's take our woman who's in her 40s with depression. Well, maybe she has depression because she's devastated that she has MS. Maybe she has depression because she's worried she has three kids and a husband and she'll be in a wheelchair in two years and that's not what she planned for her life. Maybe she has depression because the steroids that she's on are causing the depression. Maybe she has depression because the immune agent that she's on is contributing to depression. Maybe she has depression because the immune process itself, inflammatory process, is driving the depression, which we know that it can do. And maybe and maybe, right? And it's probably all of the above, right? And that's the point, that by being neuropsychiatrists, we're not just reductionists, but if you have a patient with MS, you can get our incredible care. And then you can also say, Laura, could you see Mrs. Smith, and then we bring that to the table to put the whole picture together for Mrs. Smith and to be able to, in one-stop shopping, be able to address all of those things, figure out her medications together with the neurologist, work on the psychosocial issues, address the family issues, understand the inflammatory issues, and then understand the, the brain issues as well. Kate, you got to hear David's exhaustive list of all the possible causal agents. And so I'm gonna put it back to you as the- Oh, may I say, and she, and she genetically could be predisposed to depression, right? That's the other thing. Yes. Uh, right. <laughs> so Kate, walk us through now from using your researcher lens, what is going on here to help us better understand the myriad inputs and the causal agents that go to set that milieu and, and, and set the foundation for somebody to, to suffer from a mental illness? It's a very complex system. Um, these are very complex disorders and trying to understand them. But we've made a lot of progress in the field of research, both here at the Brigham and more broadly in the field. And some of the most interesting things that have come forward is this idea that um, the way we classify these illnesses has been largely based on symptom checklists. We ask patients, how are you feeling this week? And we go through a list and we give people diagnoses based on these. And in the field of research, one of the major shifts, and it really a paradigm shift that has been really important in our understanding of the causes of these illnesses, is to acknowledge that because these are brain diseases, we need to start to classify people based on objective markers of brain function. This is a new area of research. It's not yet trickled down to clinical care. We're not 
suggesting yet from the research standpoint that we change you know, the face of diagnosis. We need to recognize a few things that have become very clear in the research field. The first is that these different disorders, major depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, are not completely separate from one another. There are an enormous number of overlapping features that are risk factors for developing these diseases. From a genetic standpoint, we know that many of the genetic risk factors are shared across these illnesses. We know the brain consequences of the illnesses over time can be very, very similar across these, what we've often thought to be discrete entities that are different diagnoses. That overlap has been largely ignored from a research standpoint until more recently, and we've thought more about the way we classify these illnesses. Perhaps just as importantly, within each of these categories, there's a huge amount of heterogeneity. One patient who's diagnosed with bipolar disorder could be a CEO of a company and functioning very, very highly in the world. And another patient with the exact same diagnosis might be homeless and unemployed. We don't understand when we think about what causes bipolar disorder, these people as individuals, because we're labeling them as if they're the same. And we know very clearly based on the way they function that they're not. And we need to understand what it is it about one's brain function that makes him or her able to continue to function very well in the world. And another patient with that same label, if you will, functioning so poorly. This sort of recognition of the, the sort of limitations of the way we've thought of these illnesses, highlighting both the cross-disorder overlap as well as these sort of within-disorder heterogeneous groups of patients has really started to really make a change in the way we think about individuals. So in a lot of the other fields of medicine, the big buzzword now for the past 10, 15 years is personalized medicine, right? Individualized approaches based upon precision medicine, etc. If someone has breast cancer or someone has a heart failure, we don't just leave it that way as a label. We say, what does the imaging look like? Is it receptor positive or negative? Which receptor? What's the genetic profile? What is the metabolomic profile? of this, et cetera, et cetera. And then we can say, you know, Mr. Jones, Ms. Rodriguez, whatever, whoever, you have this particular type of cancer or heart disease. And therefore we know, because science and our research has shown us, that you should take this medication and not this medication because of the mechanism of your particular disease in your body. And you'll have a 97.2% chance of responding to this medicine that targets that mechanism but only a 17% chance of responding to the other medicine. And that might have been even missed in a clinical trial where you lump all those patients together who in fact are biologically and psychologically different in this case. And what we're working towards, and the Brigham is a leader in this in brain imaging, is personalized psychiatry, where we will be able to say, you know, Mr. Chen, you have depression type 4B because this is the profile of your frontal limbic subcortical brain activity. Uh, these are your genetic polymorphisms. This is your stress cortisol level, and this is your autonomic tone. And therefore, we can say, try this medicine that has this mechanism and not that medicine. And that's what we want to do. We want to be then telling the drug companies, develop this new target, because now you have a target to go after like other fields of medicine, as opposed to a situation in psychiatry where that has been lacking, and that's why pharma companies have been divesting themselves in the past uh, with psychiatric drug budgets, 
even though that's a huge market for them because there's not a scientific approach. So we're now providing a roadmap that is just going to transform the field. And when we teach our phenomenal young trainees and folks in the lab, we have the ability to lay the foundation for that future where a person comes in and they see Chuck, they see us as needed, and we're able to, to specify. The reason it's taken longer, and I'll end with this notion on this, that then in cardiology or oncology or nephrology is because in psychiatry, we're dealing with the most complex functions of the most complex organ that make us who we are. And with all due respect to our folks who take care of other organs, you know, <laughs> it's no wonder it's taken a couple of decades more to start to get some traction and momentum, but we're starting to crack it now. Still have a long way to go. Before we part ways, I want to just go right down the panel. I want to sort of close and send people off with each of you speaking to what gives you the most hope or the most excitement as you think about what lies ahead in the investigation into or care for patients with mental illness. Nomi, do you want to start first? I think that spectrum of where we fall in vulnerability and resilience changes kind of sometimes time of day, stage of life. And I feel there's sort of no inevitability that mental health should drive a sort of permanent loss of functioning. And I feel like the more that we understand about all the components that drive it, from the most sophisticated understandings to the more general kind of social determinants, the more we have real reason for optimism that this is something that we can get our arms around and deal with in a humane way. So, you know, I think from a kind of optimistic standpoint, I think, let's start with the reality that we don't have cures for these illnesses yet. And I think we're working toward that. I am in the research field because, because research to me is the hope. I think we're, we're moving toward understanding these illnesses. And I'll give a very quick example of some of the things that my team is doing, but the other areas of research have expanded upon. And it, it gets back to David's point about how inflammation is the source of potential causes of some of these disorders. This is a theme that runs through many different mental disorders. And we've recently shown that there's a marker that in the periphery is upregulated and you see basically just shows evidence of inflammation. That's associated in the patients with bipolar disorder with cognitive decline. This is something that sounds like it's not exactly the most hopeful, but now that we know that, this is a very clear modifiable risk factor for a very bad outcome in patients. We can target this, we can target it medically with medications, we can target it with good diet, with exercise, with sleep regimens. This is something we can change. And the thing that is sort of most hopeful about this particular example is that it is upstream of all of these bad brain changes that happen because of these illnesses. If we can get to that target, we can start to do something that we haven't been able to do yet in psychiatry, which is not just treating the symptoms of the illness, but actually aborting the progress of the illness over time. David? The fact that mental illness now is getting to the point where, you know, and it takes a while where it can be destigmatized and where we can understand the biological basis. It wasn't too many decades ago where nobody would admit having cancer in the family or Alzheimer's. It was hush-hush, right? And now, you know, people can't line up fast enough, hopefully, to get their name on a building or something to contribute to the cure of this, as they should, right? Uh, but the point is, and uh, people, I think, have been lagging behind in psychiatry, too, because of the residual you know, shame or embarrassment, whereas, in fact, and I can tell you this, it's in every family. Every family, doesn't matter who, where, what, 
And uh, so it's about time that we, we just look it straight in the eye. And the hope then, Chuck, is that as we were discussing, and as exemplified by our research, we're going to develop here and on the leading edge of precision psychiatry to develop new ways of diagnosing a new taxonomy for these disorders, uh, understanding mechanism. And in addition to the biopsychosocial, I think what we do here that's really so special, with even with our sub-subspecialists as well, is that we're integrating the biopsycho and social. It's not just three boxes that you check, what's going on in the person's family and, and work life or school life and relationships, you know, what's their developmental history, what is their neurotransmitter level, etc. We are really understanding the brain circuits that mediate our interaction as organisms, as, as conscious higher order beings with the environment, with each other, and how that can go awry causing suffering. And when we understand the mechanisms and then put in innovative systems of care and integrate it with the medicine, then that's what gives me hope. All right. I, I want to thank Nomi, Kate, and David for joining us. Thank you for listening. To hear more from experts at Brigham and Women's Hospital, please subscribe or visit bwhgiving.org forward slash listen.